Welcome to Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth, the podcast of Plymouth United Church of Christ. I am Pastor David, and on behalf of the members of this congregation, thank you very much for joining us. May God bless you through these words, and may you know God's love through them. Now, the podcast. The Gospel text comes from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down in the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Here ends the reading from God's word. It is true, and it may be trusted. My mother is the queen of the seating chart, right? There was never, there never has been, and I believe there never will be, any kind of family occasion, large or small, where there was not a seating plan and place cards. That's just the way we rolled, and not when we were kids, you know, table growing up, but any special occasion. Weddings, oh my gosh. Rehearsal, dinners production, like you wouldn't believe. And everybody, every, she would spend hours over the seating chart, draws the table, knows who's coming. I tell you, you don't RSVP to my mother, or you spring an extra guest at the last minute, <laughs> she didn't know what to do. Because there are rules in Margot House's seating charts. Spouses do not sit together so that they talk to somebody besides each other. Children, might, young children might sit near one of their parents, but if it's a bunch of relatives around, they're expected to sit and discuss and talk with the older relatives as though they were you know, tiny humans, the children were. Um, I remember many a time sitting across the Christmas Eve table from my great uncle Pat, and having the best time because he was great with kids. He just, he loved being there, loved being, and mom fixed that all up. She took care in her seating charts to make sure that there would be good comfort, at least one or two people in each part of the table or each round table who were good conversationalists, who could bring everybody into the conversation. For mom, a seating chart was not about getting the right place in the place of honor. The seating chart for mom was and still is about 
bringing people together, enjoying and helping them to get the maximum enjoyment out of a table of fellowship, especially at things like weddings and rehearsal dinners and stuff when you don't maybe know a lot of other people there. Make sure you've got someone at the table, she says, who can talk. And who can, doesn't only talk about themselves. And a lot of people can talk, but they're really good at talking about themselves. So, and there's something very comforting about going to a Margot House event. Because you know there's a place at the table for you. And if it's, say, Christmas, and the family's all gathered together in mom's condo, which doesn't have a big dining room or a big dining room table anymore, but you're going to eat together as a family for several nights, there will be place cards every night. And it will get shuffled up all the time. So you have to talk to all your siblings over the course of the days, and your in-laws, and your nieces, and nephews. And there's no such thing as a kid's table anymore, because, well, we're all kids. Um, so some of us eat at a card table in the study, and some of us eat at a pop-up table in the living room, and some eat at this table in the kitchen, and some eat around the island. And each of those places has a place card. Everybody has a place at the table. When we're talking about this parable, I had to go look at, at kind of how did they eat? How did they sit at big events way back in the day? Because I'd heard about it all the time. You know, well, they didn't actually sit in chairs at a table like we did. They reclined on couches. It's like, I didn't get that. I needed a visual, you know. So thank you, Google. Um, because I learned some things this time, that there, that there was a thing. The Greeks started this lying down to eat deal. I, I still don't know why. I can't believe it promotes this digestion or comfort or fellowship or anything. I it's sort of I have a hard time with that. And also, they tended to lie on their left side, and my hip is already screaming in protest, I tell you. Um, and the Romans picked up for the Greeks. And then, of course, the the people of Israel, or the Jews, picked it up from the Roman occupation. So the rich people, like the Pharisees, the rich Pharisees, would have picked up those Roman customs. And uh, you're not going to all, well, I'll just have to show it around, because it's fascinating. So you imagine these, like, benches, but a bench where you've got a U-shaped thing, right? And you've got this long deal where three people could lie side by side, propped on their left elbow with a kind of a cushion there, and, and you're dipping into the, there's maybe a table, there's either a table in the center, or um, there are servants who just keep bringing you food. You know, so you're, you're in that. And here's, let's see, what's, what's the good picture? So, imagine this, this kind of a thing. Can you see this? That's how you're eating dinner. You're propped up on your left arm, eating around the table. Not quite my style, but that was, that was all the range back then. If you see, this one's really blurry, but you can see how they are, and there's a the little table. Oh, it went away. Don't like me. Stop that. Um, it was blank. Here we go, this one. That, there we go. 
This one, you, it's a little blurry, but you can see you can see around the table, and they got the bowls of food on there, and they're um, they're plucking the grapes and stuff out of the bowls of out of the bowls. Can you sort of see that in the middle of there? That gives new meaning to if you figure the Last Supper, they're probably eating like this. And when Jesus says, "Someone who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me." That's how close they all were to each other and to the food. That, that for me, gave new power and punch to that line. But anyway, so the deal is that you've got this thing set up. It's called a triclinium, just in case you're wondering. I was. And you, sometimes they built rooms that had permanent ones in stone that you put cushions on and stuff, because that would be more comfortable, lying on stone on cushions. That would be, yeah, just a way to spend a lovely, pleasant evening at, at dinner. Um, and this is for special occasions. This was not for just family meals. Also, in this arrangement, it's only men in the room. Men and women are separate. So, and the seats are assigned by your social standing. That's the whole thing about the place of honor, right? So, the deal is that if it were a big feast, they would have to set up several of these, because you can get about nine people around, 12 if you squeeze, as they found out at the Last Supper. Um, you only get it's, it's three of three, so you'd have to set up these kind of things, which is like setting up round tables here, good conversation, except for the lying down part. And the closer you were to the door, or to the outsides of the room, the lower your social standing. The closer you were to the center, the higher your social standing. Some of them even had a raised platform, either at one end of the room, which would then be the high place, or they'd raise a platform in the center. And for that kind of, for the most, most important guests. And the custom was that even if your host invited you to start out at the place of honor, if someone of higher standing came late, you could get bounced down to a lower table. That's what, that's what the reference is to here. Don't, don't when you're invited, um, do not sit in the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. They'd actually do that. I Miss Manners now would have a thing to say about that, I'm thinking. So there was all this whole social standing and pecking order, which pecking order chickens is who gets to eat first, so I guess it's the same thing here with humans. Um, and Jesus is saying, don't make those assumptions about how swell you are about how much you deserve the best spot, the best seat in the house. How you deserve, and how many of you, when you go out to a restaurant, get picky about the table you want? I do. I don't want the table right by the kitchen where they're gonna be bumping into me with the food. I don't want the tables right by the bathroom. You know, I, 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 I like a booth if, I, if, if I'm at that kind of a restaurant, you know, rather than a table. I, and I like to be more in the corner. I don't like when I'm eating alone to be out in the middle of the room. You know, I'm picky about what I, where I want to sit. 
Jesus is saying, take the table by the kitchen. Take the table by the bathroom. Just don't assume that you've got a right to the highest place of honor in anything. Be humble. Now, you have to be careful about hearing that too. Because it's possible to get really, to get um, what I like to call competitive humility. <laughs> you know, you never know, oh, well, I really couldn't do that. It's, it's continual self effacement, and then it's like, well, they're really um, just plain humble folks, so I'm going to be more humble than they are. You get into this, like, and you get pride, people get prideful about their humility, which I find very fascinating. Um, and, and how they're denying themselves things. And truly humble people, of course, don't think about denial or whatever. They just are. They're, they live authentically. They live knowing that they're not the be-all and end-all. My classic working definition of humility is remembering that God is God and I am not. And so I think about some of the people who could use some lessons in humility in our world, and, and we all know some of them, and if we don't know them personally, we see them on TV all the time or in Congress, um, or all kinds of places. I'm, and I'm not waving any fingers at parties or anything. It's, they're all there. And you know when you meet somebody who is just true, authentic, salt of the earth, humble, right? You know when you meet somebody like that. Those are the people I admire. People who are genuine. Authentic, and don't insist on things being made easy or beautiful or great for them. You know, Warren Buffett, very, very rich man, does not live in a great, huge mansion or palace. He lives in a relatively modest home, probably bigger than mine, but you know relatively modest home. He's never seen the need to surround himself with the trappings of wealth. He just does what he loves to do, and he's good at it. And so he invests, and he helps people invest, in, and he makes money, which he is not actually going to pass on to his children. He's going to give it, most of it away. His kids will be comfortable. He wants them to have to work. There's a novel thought. So there's something about Having a place at the table, no matter who you are, no matter how poor, no matter how uneducated, no matter how literate, no matter how pigmentally challenged, you might be in our society. No matter how lame, no matter how old, no matter how young, 
There's something about having a place at the table. You all are going to cook for the community table. You know about that. You know about providing places at the table for everybody. You know how important that is. You know people who come to the community table come, not just because they need a meal. Sometimes they've got a meal. Sometimes they come because they need company. They need somebody else to be with because they live the rest of their lives alone. There are all kinds of reasons somebody might come to that table. Years ago, Hillary Clinton wrote a book called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. And from that, we get the whole it takes a village thing. There's a the catchphrase that happens. <coughs> she caught a lot of grief for that because people kept saying, well, you ought to be responsible. People should be responsible for their own children. You can't rely on the village. And she's saying, well, of course you rely on the village. Of course you rely on the neighbors and the teachers and the other people in your school to help you raise your child. I was at a conference one day. It was a leadership training. And I have a bad leg, so I'm always looking for something to put my leg up on because it's more comfortable to sit. There was a little end table there that was about the right height, so I moved it over into the room, put it in front of my chair, and, and uh, propped my leg up on it sometimes and didn't other times. And pretty soon, the people around me started using it because it had a little shelf under it. People started putting their stuff on, on the shelf. You know, they put their notebook and their pen and their coffee cup and this and that. And pretty soon I had a whole little group gathered around me and my table. And uh, one of the leaders looked at me after a break and said, are you building a village over there? I said, well, it takes a village. And I said, you know what? And it takes a table to make a village. And I think that's really true. It takes a table to make a village. It takes a, the fellowship of the table extended to all to make a village. I've often thought, and I've never had the guts to do it or the, the organization. I've thought of going to this little park right by my house on a summer evening. And setting up a card table and some chairs and bringing some food and putting up a sign that says potluck. And just seeing who would join me. And to do that every week over the summer and to see if, there, if just by putting a table there, neighbors who don't know each other might start to form a village. It's a great it's an idea I play with and I just never do. I kind of do something about that. But what could happen with a table laid and the expectation that everybody was welcome? That everybody could come? I know people who are great about Thanksgiving, just saying, if you've got no place to go, come to our house. That's one thing my mother's not good at. She always wonders, why would people do that when they have a chance to just have their family together? Because Jesus said they should. But that doesn't work with her, so I just say, gee, mom, I don't know. Um, but people, there's something about being invited. And what could happen in terms of understanding each other? 
seeing people as people, sitting across the table from each other and sharing food, and understanding that your neighbor who has the opposite political signs than you in your yard actually has more in common with you than different. What could happen if the somebody across town that you never met before turned out to be an amazing human being that you were thrilled to connect with? What's the possibility if people started again inviting people to their homes for meals, which we so rarely do anymore. We all meet at restaurants or we go out. But what if we started inviting around our table people we don't even know or people that we don't know well? We know a little bit, but not well. What spirit and change could that bring to a community? What hope could that bring to people? I dare say, if enough people began to invite to their table people whom they do not know, people they would not normally invite, and made the effort to get to know them as human beings and to exalt the humble, and the humble be exalted a little bit, we might even get a few steps closer to world peace. Towards seeing other people as people and not as objects, not as things to fear. This is the table that we say is always open. At this table, all are. The humble are exalted. The exalted, if they come to this table in the spirit of Christ, remembering the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the exalted cannot help but be humbled. This is our table. It's a great place to start. This is the table that has built our village. So come to the table, sisters and brothers, as you are, ready for an encounter with Christ, with each other, and with the world. Come to the table. Thanks be to God. And that is the good news for this day and for all days. Thank you again for listening to the Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth podcast. If you are in the Eau Claire area, we especially invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. And I invite you also to check out our website at pcucc.com for upcoming events and special worship services. From Plymouth United Church of Christ, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, This is Pastor David. Thank you for spending this time with us. May God bless you.